Thank you, praise team. That was wonderful, wonderful. If you have a prayer slip or visitor's card, or visitor's slip, if you'd pass that to the center aisle, we'd love to collect those and we'll be in prayer for you this week. Let's open our swords to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. And our message this morning is um, every mouth will be stopped. Every mouth stopped. Nothing illustrates the deceptions of the human heart like the words that come out of our mouths. We're masters of spin, and deception is not far away. It flows from us rather easily, if we'll be honest. Whether it's exaggeration or flattery or slander or lying, our words come from a heart that's been impacted by sin's power, which is the point of Romans 1 through 3. Our text this morning tells us that we're, we're destined for accountability to God, to give an account of our life. In Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That would speak to the Jew for sure, so that every mouth would be stopped, and we know as well to, for the Gentile, that no one gets a pass. And so there, there will come a moment when, when every ma- mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. Do we believe that? Yes, we, we believe that. And that gives an urgency to the gospel, which is God's work in Christ to reconcile a broken and fallen world to himself. Jesus taught such an accountability He said in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, that what comes out of our mouth should verify the saving relationship we have with Jesus Christ. So for the better part of this year, we have slowed the pace a bit in our study of the book of Romans to take in the biblical account of the human condition. In Romans 1 through 3, it presents some of the most sobering teaching really in the New Testament on what it means to be a sinner and to live under the bondage of sin, which is all of our story. And so I said last week, one of the reasons that this idea that we have free will doesn't bring comfort to me is because our will, while we're free to do what we want, when we want to do it, We're in bondage to sin, and so we would never do what we ought to do with regard to God's standard of righteousness. My will is in bondage to my sin nature. My heart is described in Romans 3, 10 through 18. I'm not righteous. There's none of us who are righteous, not even a single one. No one understands. No one really gets it. Apart from God revealing himself to us, we would grope in darkness. No one seeks for God, even though we may be religious to the hilt. That doesn't mean, as God defines it, that we are seeking Him at all. In fact, we are running from Him. And what's so troubling about this verse and these verses is often we, 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 we don't get this because we have a, a friend who doesn't walk in the way of Christ, or we see the love of humanity on the big picture being expressed, and we are thankful for those expressions, but would credit God's common grace to that, uh, not human um, 
not human goodness in the sense as God defines it. And so often we, we, we're troubled with this. No one's righteous, not even one. I, I got a neighbor who gave the shirt off his back. Uh, who, who does all of these benevolent things. You telling me that he doesn't seek righteousness? He doesn't understand? He's not seeking God as he understands it to be? Well, I'm pointing to the, the God who is and the God who defines the, um, uh, the parameters of things. And the answer is no. And that's where we often get derailed on really understanding the impact of these verses is one of our, the greatest disservices we do to ourselves is compare with other people. And what Romans 3 insists that we do is to see righteousness as God defines it, seeking as God defines it, understanding as God defines it, or we'll always miss the boat. So my heart and your heart is described in Romans 3, 10 through 18, and, and Paul's use of they, verse 12, they have become worthless, they, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. We might feel like we're off the hook. Well, he's speaking about people out there. No, he's speaking about humanity, all of us, as God defines it. And so what does it mean to be a sinner? Which is often laughed about. We mention sin and it's often a joke. In the sense of, well, nobody's perfect. Don't we know that? Um, what does it mean to be a sinner? Well, my takeaway from Romans 3 is I simply don't have what it takes to please God. And would say that if I don't embrace that in some sense of understanding, I'll never see the need for Christ. I'll never see the need for salvation because I don't see myself as really needy. I simply don't have what it takes to please God. The one in whom I will be held accountable to at the end of it all. Not only that, left to myself, I'm going in the wrong direction. And there's no one to take me off of that road of disaster. Now here's another way these verses are misunderstood. Is maybe you're in this gathering today and you're thinking, I'm successful. I've got a good job, provided for my family. i got a college degree. I got things in my life's not a disaster. I, I love my life. I love my life. And that could be one of the most dangerous places a person could be is to not see their need for God. Because the way God evaluates you is not based upon your income, it's not based upon your education, it's not based upon your human code of ethics that you think are going to get you along in this world. It's by his righteous standard. I simply don't have what it takes to please God. Left to myself, I'm going in the wrong direction. And my life reflects that I'm under sin's power. In what way? Well, the text says here, um, by my words, my, my words reveal my spiritual state. Um, the motives and intents of my heart reveal that I'm not right with God. My lack of peace and restlessness further bear witness in many instances ruin and misery have been in the wake of my life because I've insisted on doing things my way and truth be known there's there's really no fear of God 
before my eyes. So, how do I apply these verses further into understanding God's ways and the power of the gospel that I might know eternal life? I, I, I think it would begin in this way. Um, by, by acknowledging I, I'm, a, I'm a person of great weakness, which doesn't sell, does it? You're not going to have um, a, a run on Kindle to get a book entitled that I'm weak. I'm a person of great weakness, spiritually. I'm experienced in sinfulness would be a second takeaway. We're pros at it. That's why David prayed in Psalm 27, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I'm a person of great weakness. I'm experienced in sinfulness. I am helpless to change my situation on my own. Recalibrating your weak to include religious services isn't going to reverse sin's power in your life. It may put you in a position to where you're hearing good news that will liberate you, but it is through Christ alone and personal faith in him, seeing his death on the cross and resurrection as your soul's only hope to be reconciled from God and to reverse the bondage that we all face. I would mention, fourthly, that we carry the scars of suffering and the wounds of weakness. Sin brings with it scars, fears, troubles, Millard Erickson in his Christian theology gives a helpful survey of the character of sin. Not only is it missing the mark, it's described as transgression, iniquity, rebellion, treachery, perversion, abomination. It wreaks havoc on our relationships. It brings great upheaval into our lives personally. Its punishment is sure and more than we can bear. And because of that, sin breeds restlessness. It is evil. In Deuteronomy 30, God sets before the people the choice, life and good and death and evil. And Moses said to Israel, choose this day whom you will serve and what you will pursue. Will it be life and the goodness of God or will it be death and evil? It breeds guilt. It breeds guilt. James said in James 2, if I'm guilty of one point of the law, what? Just one. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty of it all. It breeds a guiltiness. The sinner is liable to punishment for offending God. It brings more guilt. It brings trouble. It brings sorrow. The idea of misery and difficulty. In Proverbs 22.8, he who sows injustice will reap calamity. So maybe you're holding up a white flag right now and say, all right, Enough. Why is this so important? Why are you belaboring this doctrine? And I will continue to belabor it because Paul does. I would hang my thoughts on four truths this morning. One would be a question, really. Um, The first one is a question. Why is this doctrinal foundation so important? Well, I would just say, why is it important for me to see myself as falling short of God's glory? Why is it important for me to embrace the fact that I'm a sinner? And how could that transform my relationship with God and my prayer life? And how I treat others and the forbearance that I give towards others? Well, 
I would note first that having a high view of myself is blinding. To have a high view of myself is blinding. It breeds with it a deception. And I need to take the full weight of Romans 1 through 3 and to say, this is how God sees me. And how God sees me is the most important thing. And I don't have much to brag about. And that's good for me. Paul said to the Corinthians, let, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, his grace in our life. I think secondly, understanding our depravity opens up the wonders of redemption. Understanding Romans 1 through 3 has impacted like a domino, other doctrines of the Bible. And we're going to see them in the book of Romans where Paul mentions predestination, foreknowledge, predestination, and then chapter 9, the whole subject of election. Why is the doctrine of election something we should cherish and not throw over in the corner and pretend like it's not true when it runs through the whoop and wharf of Scripture? The doctrine of election is a domino that falls that who, who has the power to reverse my condition? Who has the power to deliver me from this bondage? The God who chose me in Christ from the foundation of the world. In fact, I would just say with regard to the doctrine of election and why I think it's important to mention here is because if we don't see ourselves in light of Romans 3, the offense is going to be greater. With regard to our pride. But the doctrine of election is presented in the New Testament in three astonishing ways. It's, it's presented as a word of comfort. For all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to a purpose, His purpose. It's presented as a word of praise and thanksgiving. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, we thank God we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. So Paul says we thank God for that. And then it's a motivation for evangelism. This is an astonishing statement made by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy where he says that he endured all things for the sake of the elect. So in this humanity that's described in terms like Romans 1 through 3, what hope do we have? That we have a God who is greater, his grace is greater than all of our sin. And ultimately, that's the testimony of every Christian, that God's grace has overcome my resistance to him. Jesus taught this in no uncertain terms when he said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so I think rightly understanding our depravity is key to understanding other doctrines that we're going to come face to face with in the word of God. And we begin to understand the fear of the Lord. Secondly, God's law has no loopholes. So, as we look at 
depravity, he says, now we know, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That word know in the Greek communicates an absolute certainty. We, we absolutely know this to be true, that Jew and Gentile, Jew under God's written law, Gentile under the revelation of God and creation, suppressing that truth and introducing all forms of idolatry, that we're guilty before God. John MacArthur wrote, God is the creator, sustainer, and Lord of the entire universe, and it is therefore impossible for anyone or anything to be outside his control and authority. So unredeemed humanity has no defense whatever and is guilty of all charges. Which leads us to the third point. Every mouth will be silenced. This is an incredible statement. One day, one day every mouth will be stopped, which is quite a statement to Americans because we got opinions. No more catchy comebacks. No more spin. No more blame shifting. No more lies. No more truth claims that are not based on what God has said. Every mouth will be silenced. And yet even saying that, some may be thinking even in this room, oh yeah, but I've got a good one. Every mouth will be silenced. No more lies. Everything exposed. This is what God has said. This is the bar of God. Which leads fourthly, we will all be accountable to God in verse 19. The whole world may be held accountable to God. Everyone. Every person who's ever lived. And so... That makes us a little uncomfortable because sometimes thoughts of, you know, fair, fairness doctrines come into play and, you know, it will be perfect righteousness, perfect judgment, which we don't see in this world, but he will see and expose things as they really are. In Hebrews 9.27, I mentioned this earlier, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes what? Judgment. Judgment. And the question will be on that day, who will represent you? You got two choices. Morris Bart isn't one of them. You've got two choices. You can represent yourself. And we've heard the foolish statements. People have said, well, when I stand before God, I'm going to let him have it. You're a fool. I'm going to tell him what's what. You don't understand. That's, that's how the judgment is presented in Scripture. If you read Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the great white throne judgment, there's no bartering at that bar, at that judgment seat. 
There's no negotiations. This is God bringing history and humanity to its end, which is why we need to find our identity in Him. God has built a bridge. The cross stands over history. One man has said, literally, history's nailed together literally as the Son of God was crucified on that cross. And that the preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but unto us which are being saved, it's the power of God. For the Jews sought signs. The, the Greeks sought wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jew, a stumbling block, and to the Greek, foolishness. And Paul uses the Greek word moria, where we get the word moronic. To the, to, the, to the lost Gentile, the whole concept of God being crucified on the cross, that's a moronic thought. So we have a life to live, we have a death to die, and we have a judgment to face. And Jesus Christ is our hope as we face all of those things. He is our life. What we're speaking about today is really good news because we've tried to soak into the fabric of Romans 3 to see the depth of our depravity. And our only hope is that there's one mediator between sinful us and God, and that's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's our only mediator. So, that is, those are the two choices, you or Christ, who is our advocate for those who trust him. So, do you believe that you're a sinner? I pray so. That'll transform your prayer life. That'll transform how you come to the Lord's table and you remember his bread the bread representing his body given for you and the blood, which is the blood of the new covenant in Christ. This week I read of a man who went to the pastor of the church that he was visiting and he was burdened over his sin and he came to tell the pastor that coming to church actually made him feel worse than he had beforehand. And he was considering not coming anymore. The pastor assured him that the closer he, he got to Jesus Christ, that he would become aware not of how good he was, but rather how sinful he was. And that makes any of us uncomfortable, doesn't it? The pastor went on to tell a man of a man who was all dressed up and was on his way to a party in a car came down the street and hit a puddle and totally drenched him, mud, water, everything. And it was dark outside, so the, at first the man thought the damage might be slight. And so he, he could tell he was wet, but since it was, he didn't know how he looked, he thought that he would just go to the party. Ahead of him was a street light, and when he got about halfway toward it, he looked down at his clothes again and realized that the damage was greater than he thought. And he was worried, but thought he would still go on. And at last he came and stood beneath the light and saw the damage with the full illumination of the light upon him. And he said, my goodness, it's worse than I thought. I'm going to have to go home and change my clothes. And as the pastor told the story, the man said, 
but I don't have any clean clothes. Right, Pastor? It was the point to which the scriptures, whether in Genesis or Romans or any other part, would, would have us come. God's word would have us see that we do not have any clean clothes in order that we might come to Christ, who alone is able to provide them. And some of you, that's, your, that's what's keeping you from full surrender to Christ. You're thinking in your mind wrongly. That you need to get yourself cleaned up before you come to him and you can't. The only one that can reverse Romans 3, 10 through 19 is the Lord Jesus Christ. The wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you come to him for those clothes? There's a hymn that says, dressed in his righteousness alone. When he comes back, you want to be dressed in his righteousness alone, which is the gift of God for those who trust in Christ. If you do, you will find that he will indeed meet your need and enable you to stand before him as one of his redeemed children. We all are destined to be accountable to God. That should cause us to think through how we live each and every day. Romans 3 prepares us for the day of accountability as it brings us to our need for a redeemer. I'm always thinking of this when I think of Jesus Christ representing me before the bar of God. By the way, that's my only hope. Sometimes people think, well, you're in religious work and you do religious things. You lead Bible studies and preach sermons and do worship. You're at church all the time, visit sick people, write letters and stuff like that. Sure, surely God's going to like you better. You're going to have favor with him because of that. I want you to know this is what I believe, that my preaching, if anything, would condemn me. I believe that. My, my, my attitudes and motivations and the way I do things in my life, they don't commend me to God. My only boast before you is the congregation, which, by the way, was 28 years this, this week. We have been together. My only boast to you is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He is our story. He is our song. He is the one we look to. But think with me for just a moment as we close and come to the table. Is that statement in 1 John 2. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we're giving an account of our life... And every transgression and every sin is poured out before God's perfect justice. What hope do we ha have of surviving such scrutiny? None. But to have an advocate, one to plead our case, says before the bar of God, the judgment of God, that based upon my blood and righteousness, this guilty man, this guilty woman's sentence has been averted. It's paid for by my blood and my righteousness. Of all the things we could say about Jesus, he was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. He never, he never sinned, which makes him the only one qualified to be our all-sufficient Savior, which is why his death is the most important in human history. And when he died on the cross, he... Um, he established a new covenant. 
And God spoke about this new covenant in, in, the, in the prophets, that God would not write his law on tablets of stone, but on our hearts, and that the Spirit of God would dwell within us. This morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and I would just invite you as a preparation, not to rush there, is to pause with me in prayer. And um, I would just, uh, before we do pray, I want to give opportunity, Sylvester and Will are in the back. If you don't have uh, the bread and the cup, we'd love to give you um, that. If you didn't pick it, up, pick it up on the way in, just raise your hand, they'll give that to you. And as we prepare to come and proclaim his death together, uh, would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we're warned in Scripture to, um, to not eat of the bread or drink of the cup lightly. In fact, Paul said to the Corinthians, some had done that and didn't survive, which is really sobering. But it is a call for all of us to examine our hearts. So we pray with David in Psalm 139, search us, O Lord and try us and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We pray, Lord, for things that can stack up in our heart. Idols, just bad thinking and bad attitudes and things we know that are not right. Harboring grudges and bitterness. Blaming others not taking responsibility for our actions, soft-coating sin, minimizing the need for repentance when we're out of line with you. Oh, praise be to God for Calvary's cross, where the bondage of our sin was paid for and lifted by those who trust in Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, as we come into your presence, we pray, Lord, that you would hear our prayer and that we would be nourished, that our faith would be strengthened as we enjoy this meal together. In Jesus' name, amen. As we think about taking the Lord's Supper together, um, if you're a believer and have followed uh, uh, Christ in baptism, Um, you're invited to come and would invite you to come. So the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was, was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus gave two ordinances to the church, the Lord's baptism and the Lord's supper. And here in this passage, Paul refers to him as Lord. He's our absolute authority. He said the night he was betrayed, betrayed by Judas in the mockery of a series of illegal trials. 
We give thanks. He gave thanks. When he gave thanks, he broke it. He gave his life freely. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Truly, Jesus paid it all, and all to him we owe. And so we come to the table first to take of the bread, and maybe we could eat this together this morning, this bread that signifies his body. Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And then came the cup and the imagery of the, of the blood. Leviticus said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that every sacrifice in Leviticus pointed to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. The one, the, the one uh, redeemer, the one savior that would truly save. And as we drink of the cup, we proclaim his death until he comes forgiven by, by faith in Christ alone. So may we drink and remember his goodness to us. going to close our service this morning with a a time for responding in faith. Our praise team's going to come. We're going to sing an old hymn together, Grace Greater Than All of Our Sin. And we really believe that every time the Word of God is opened and preached, it really is a call to obey, to believe. And I don't know how this message, the theme of this morning has has met you. Maybe there's a, a a struggle with the whole concept of sin, seeing how that alienates you from God. I pray that God would give light, that you would come to hear the word of God, and even this morning that you would respond to this call. Maybe the Lord has revealed other things to you just through the examination of your heart, that you would act in obedience on these things. Let's stand together as we sing, and may the Lord be glorified as we close this service in faith.